Last week we saw John standing before the throne, and as this worship is being given to God by the elders, by the living beings who are the cherubim, he looks and he sees this scroll in the right hand of God the Father in chapter 5, the first couple of verses. And we looked at what that scroll was. That scroll was a legal document of heaven. It was, in a sense, the title deed to the world that had been forfeited by Adam and Eve in their sin. And now John is waiting for someone to step forward to take this document who is worthy to fulfill the terms so that all creation can be restored, so that sin can be abolished, so that Satan can be conquered. And in verse 4 of, John chapter, of, of Revelation chapter 5 here, John breaks down weeping because he realizes there's no one. The call goes out from the great angel, the strong angel, who is worthy to open this scroll, and no one. No one steps forward in heaven, in earth, below the earth, the Bible says. And so John is just distraught. It's almost like we waited all this time, and now it's hopeless. Until we get to verse 5, and that's where we're going to start reading. Um, this is where the elder comes forward. And so we'll read 5 through 7. I think that's about as far as we're going to get today. 5 through 7, it says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We're going to stop there for now. We'll see if we get farther than that, but let's have a word of prayer as we embark on this journey into God's word. Lord, again, we just come before you and submit ourselves to the authority, to the truth of your word. Lord, everything that you've given us here is the truth. We know that. We trust you. And so as you reveal to us these things, as you teach us these things today about our Savior, about the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, Lord, I pray that you would just show us what you want us to learn. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the things that are important. And Lord, may you be honored during this time as your word is given forth. May your Holy Spirit do his work in each one of us. Make our hearts soft and open to the things you want to teach us today. And Lord, use me now. I'm a weak human being, finite in my thinking, and yet you, an infinite God, almighty in power and wisdom, can speak through me. And so I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, use me just as your instrument, that you might be glorified, that your word might be proclaimed today, that we might be challenged by you. <clears throat> we thank you for what you're going to do now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last week, we left off in chapter 5. John is weeping because there's no one worthy to open this scroll, this uh, book that's sealed with seven seals, a legal document of heaven. And in verse 5, we start, and the elder steps forward, and one of the elders says, weep not. He tells John, there's no reason to weep. Now, I mentioned that this weeping was very similar to the weeping that the family of Lazarus did 
when he died, they were just weeping and wailing out loud, sorrowful, full of grief because Lazarus had died. We read that in John chapter 11. And so that's what John's doing here. He's just sobbing. It's overtaken him. But the elder comes forth and he says to John, don't weep. There's no reason to weep. You're weeping because you see this situation is hopeless, because you see that there's no one who stepped forward who is worthy, and yet there is somebody who's worthy. There is someone who can open this book, who can break the seals, who is worthy, who has earned this right, who has the authority to do this. Now, just as we begin, this elder is the one who comes forward. It's not an angel. Up to this point, an angel has been speaking to John in his vision. John has, been, has received direct word from Christ in the first chapter and the letters in the second and third chapter from Christ in the fourth, fourth chapter. We saw the angel talk to John, and this time it's the elder in heaven, one of the elders sitting around the throne, and he says, John, don't weep. We have an answer. We have one who is worthy, but it's not a mere man. Now, I believe it's the elder who stepped forward here because as we will see as we continue on in this chapter and beyond, the elder represents the redeemed church of God who at this point is in heaven. He's a man who now has received his glorified body and is sitting in the throne, around the throne of God, worshiping the Lord. He knows personally what it's like to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. He's experienced this himself. That is something the angels cannot claim. Angels are not redeemed. There was a host of angels, one-third of the angels, when Satan challenged God in pride and said, I want to be like the Most High, and God threw him out of heaven. One-third of the angels followed him in rebellion. There is no hope for them. They had one chance, and they've lost it. For mankind... God has given us another chance in the person of Jesus Christ. And this elder is one who represents the church, the redeemed people of God, who has experienced personally the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so knowing who the one is worthy, he steps forward to remind John there is one that's worthy. And so he gives hope to John by pointing to the only source of hope that there is for John or for any of us. Because no mere man can redeem other men. No mere man can redeem creation, can fix the problem of sin, can conquer the power of Satan. It has to be someone who is a supernatural man, and we have that in Jesus Christ. He is both God, 100%, and he is man, 100%. And so he's the one who is worthy, and that's what the elder says. But look how the elder uh, describes him. In verse 5, he says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. He calls him the lion of Judah first. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. Now, Jesus or John has already seen the glorified Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, there's a great description that he gives us. And he sees and hears him personally in his glorified state. And so he knows Jesus Christ has risen. He knows he's already seen Christ in heaven. And now the elder says, this is the Lion of Judah. He uses this phrase as a reference that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, um, we're at the end of Jacob's life. 
Remember, there was Abraham that God gave the promise, the, the Abrahamic promise to the covenant. And then his son Isaac, and then Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau, and that blessing and that promise was passed on to Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph, who we know the story how he was sold into Egypt. One of them, the fourth one, was Judah. And in, at the end of Jacob's life, he gathers all of his sons around him, and he's giving them a blessing that was traditional in that time for the father before he died to pass on the inheritance but then to bless each one of his children. And so Jacob is blessing all of his children here. And in Genesis chapter 49 verses 8 through 12, he gets to Judah. And this is what he says to Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. He doesn't say that about any of the other of the brothers. Thou art he who thy brethren will praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp, means a young lion. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? That reference to the lion of Judah is exactly what the elders referring to. And what Jacob whether he knew it or not, was saying here was prophetic of the Messiah. He was saying, out of Judah shall come this lion. He goes on and he says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, his teeth white with milk. So he gives this great blessing to the tribe of Judah, to Judah, his son, which will be extended to all of his descendants. And that is the tribe from which Jesus was born, from the tribe of Judah. But I want to show you something about this blessing in Genesis chapter 49, because he basically is saying, again, it's a prophetic um, passage about the Messiah, about the Christ who who will come. And he calls him here the lion. Now, the, the lion was the emblem of the tribe of Judah. When they would march, each of the tribes would hold up a banner or a flag, and on that was a symbol so everybody knew where they were supposed to be. Judah led for the three other tribes, and on their flag was the symbol of a lion. And it came from this blessing that Jacob gave in, in Genesis chapter 49. He, so he says, the lion... The, lion, the image of a lion speaks of dignity, of sovereignty, of courage, and of victory. If you look through history, you'll find many great kingdoms that were represented by the lion. England uses the lion. Babylon used the lion, a winged lion, as a representative uh, of their power and their, their authority. And so this lion that uh, Jacob references in Genesis chapter 49 and that the elder references in Revelation chapter 5 refers to the sovereignty, the strength, the power and authority of Christ. Now Jacob goes on. He says, here's this, Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion, very protected. If you ever see lions in their natural habitat, the lioness is very protective of their young. I mean, I mean, they will kill a male lion if it interferes with their care for their young, okay? And God protected Judah. If you remember in Judah's history, in the tribe of Judah's history, they were the last tribe to rebel and to fall. The ten tribes 
um, of Israel basically rebelled against God. Assyria came in and took over them and destroyed them. But Judah and Benjamin remained firm, and they uh, were the last basic uh, component of Israel that still stayed in the land and had their sovereignty. And so God protected this tribe of Judah, okay? So he says it's as a young lion, but then he says, like you're coming up from the prey, a lion who's killed its prey, it's eaten his fill, and then he's laid down and just kind of surveying the the land and looking over his pride. And who's going to move him? And the elder refers to this as Jesus Christ. He's about to consume his prey. He's about to set up his kingdom, to sit down in his throne, to reign and, and look over his kingdom, and who's going to move him? He goes on, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Obviously, talking about ruling the, the kingship that comes from Judah, the position of ruling that God gave to them, and it says it will forever be the tribe of Judah that will be in the, in the seat of the king. Now, God gave David when he became king, a promise. We call it the Davidic covenant. And one of the components of that covenant was that the kingdom or that his throne would never be removed. Now, we know in Israel's history that there hasn't been a physical king who has ruled in the throne of David. In fact, it didn't last very many generations until Israel lost its sovereignty. We have David, remember, and that was kind of the peak of Israel. Then we have Solomon. And then after him, two of his sons split And the kingdom split very soon after that. And then the northern kingdom kind of went on their own and rebelled against God. And eventually the southern kingdom did as well. And the entire land of Israel was taken over by by Gentiles, by the heathen nations, in God's judgment. But God says that the, the throne of David shall never be removed, that someone will be sitting on that throne forever. Again, a messianic prophecy regarding Christ. The scepter shall never be removed from between his feet. He sits in his throne with a scepter of of authority. And so he's talking about Jesus Christ. And then he references the lawgiver. He says the lawgiver shall never be moved from between his feet. The lawgiver here, literally interpreted in Hebrew, means prince of peace. Now we know from Isaiah chapter 9, that is one of the names given to Jesus Christ. He is the prince of peace. And so when Jacob is blessing his son Judah here, there is all these references to the coming Messiah, and it all is fulfilled in him. And he says, all this is going to take place. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The lawgiver shall not depart from between his feet until Shiloh come. I'm sorry, the word Shiloh there is the word prince of peace. The lawgiver refers to a judge, one that executes judgment. And Jesus is all of that. He's the prince of peace, he is a judge, he is the king, and it's all wrapped up here in this prophetic blessing that that Jacob gives to his son Judah. And at the end of it, he says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be, literally means, unto him shall all people bow in obedience. Now we know in Philippians 2, the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will all submit to Jesus Christ at his second coming. They may not submit to him now. And there are many who do not submit to him now as king. But it doesn't mean he isn't king. But when he comes back to earth to set up his millennial kingdom, there will not be one who can stand against him. 
and all will bow in his presence. And Jacob prophesies it right here. So this reference that we see in Revelation chapter 5, this lion of Judah goes back to that blessing that's given to the, the son of Jacob, Judah, and to his descendants, of which Jesus is one. And he says, a strong, fierce, deadly ruler will destroy his enemies. This is all the implications that come with this. And this is who Jesus is, a strong, fierce judge who will execute judgment upon his enemies. So why didn't the Jews see that the first time? Because that's not who he came to be the first time. See, that's who the Jews were looking for. They went back to this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. They went back to other prophecies in Isaiah and the other prophets. And they were looking for a king who would come in in their time and in their day and in their way to do away with the heathen authorities that were ruling over Israel and to restore them their own sovereignty and their own property and all the good things that God promised them. That's why on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead, the people realized, and there were probably 10,000 or more people welcoming him, the word had gotten around, and here's somebody who can raise a man from the dead. Obviously, this is the Messiah, and he's coming to set up his earthly kingdom. That means Jerusalem will be ours again. All Israel will be ours again. We're going to get rid of all these pesky Romans. We're going to get rid of all the Greeks who want to influence our culture. And we're going to go back to the way it should be. And Jesus said, nope, it's not time. My kingdom is not of this world. And then four days after he rode into Jerusalem, they put him on a cross. Because he wasn't this fierce lion that they were expecting. He came as a lamb. He came to die. He came to serve. And that's not what they wanted. They were more eager for an earthly kingdom than a heavenly one. And so when Jesus came as a meek and humble servant, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. They wanted a fierce lion king. And someday Christ is going to be that lion. He's going to come back at his second coming as that lion, a fierce judge who will judge all the earth. And that's what we see in Revelation 5. That's the time period that John's in in this vision is just before the tribulation. The church has been raptured and now God is ready to execute judgment upon the earth, and Jesus is that lion of Judah who will do that execution of the judgment. In fact, he's the only one who is worthy to execute judgment upon the earth because he paid the price, because he fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. So the elder comes to John and he says, here's your answer. Here's the solution. The only one worthy to open the scroll, the Lion of Judah. And then he refers to him as the Root of David. Again, a prophetic name that comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, in speaking this name, the Root of David, There's two ways you can interpret this, okay? The obvious way is uh, Jesus Christ is a descendant of David. He comes from the stock of David, and so he sprung out of that root. 
Okay? And that's the prophetic meaning in Isaiah chapter, chapter 11. He's the, in fact, Jesus Christ is the only living Jew today who can 100% prove his lineage all the way back to David on both sides to show that he is worthy to be the king of Israel. We don't have anyone else who can make that claim except Jesus Christ. He literally is from the root of David. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, at the end of Luke chapter 3, it gives us the lineage of Jesus Christ to Mary. And it goes back to David and all the way back to Adam. But Mary was a descendant, a direct descendant of David, King David of Israel. And then in Matthew chapter 1, you also find the lineage of Christ as it goes through Joseph. Now, even though Joseph wasn't his um, human father or his biological father, he was his earthly father, and he represented the father, the only father that Christ had on this earth as a man. So either way you look at it, when you challenge the legality of Jesus as king, he is qualified both on his mother's side and his father's side. His lineage goes back to King David, and he's the only one who can prove that he belongs on the throne of Israel. Even the Apostle Paul refers to the kingly lineage of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, He was made the seed of David according to the flesh. So Jesus' lineage can be proven. We have record of it. Now, people will challenge who don't believe, and they say, well, we have to have somebody who's alive. Jesus is alive. And he is, when you go back to lineage, you have to take the closest descendant to figure out who's worthy to be on the throne, and Jesus is the closest descendant to David that is alive today. And so he belongs there as king. So he is the son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, you see that several times. And all through the Gospels, the uh, writers of the Gospels use this phrase, the son of David, referring to his lineage from David. So by birth and lineage, Jesus is a rightful heir to the throne of David, and he's qualified to rule over Israel. That's this root of David. He came from David's line. But there's a second meaning to this phrase, the root of David, too. If you were describing to me a tree, and you said, well, the root of that tree goes down pretty deep, what are you talking about? You're talking about the part of the tree that sustains its life. And that's exactly what Jesus is. Not only did he come from David's lineage as a descendant, but he is the origin of David's throne. He is the origin of David's family and David's line. So no matter how you cut this phrase, the root of David, he is both a descendant and he is the beginning of the line of David because he was the one that created him in the first place. And he is the one that sustains him. That's why in chapter 1 we see the phrase that refers to Jesus as the ancient of days. He's eternality. He is part of the creation or the creator Because in in Colossians chapter 1, it says all things were made by him. He is in all, and all consists in him. Now, you ask the question, how could Jesus be both the origin and a descendant? Well, that's exactly the question the Pharisees asked, and there's no answer. They had no answer. 
In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, the Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said unto him, The son of David. See, even the Pharisees recognized the Messiah would be the son of David. And he said unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies my footstool. He's quoting the Psalms here, a prophetic passage about the coming Messiah. And David's calling the Messiah, Lord. In verse 45 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can you be the Lord and the Son at the same time? In verse 46, No man was able to answer him a word. Neither did any man from that day dare forth ask him any more questions. How can one person be both the descendant and the origin of the family lion? Well, it's possible if that person is Jesus Christ. Because he is both a man descended from David, and he is God, the origin of all mankind, and the creator of the throne of David. And so no matter how you look at it, the description that the elder gives here, he understood this. Jesus is the only one that's qualified. He's the only one that's worthy. And the elder goes on, he says, he has prevailed or overcome in order to be able to open the book and the seals. What did Jesus do to prevail or to overcome? He conquered sin and death. He came as a man, lived as a man without sin, then took all of sin of all mankind through all history on himself and died paying the price for all of that sin so that all mankind could be redeemed. But then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead the third day and conquered death, which is the penalty for sin. So he conquered both sin and the penalty for sin. He's overcome that. If he hadn't done that, none of us would have hope. We'd all be dead. We're on our way to, a, to an eternity in hell. So Jesus has overcome. He's overcome Satan. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. He has conquered everything that comes from the curse of sin. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, the writer of Hebrews says, For as much as then the children are partakers of flesh and blood... Talking about Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He's saying Jesus became flesh and blood, a human being. That through their death he might destroy him that, the power, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In his death and resurrection, Jesus not only conquered sin and death in himself, but he conquered it for us. And in breaking the power of sin, he has loosed us from the bondage of sin as well. We are not subject to the bondage of sin. We do not have to sin, is what that verse says. Before we're saved, that's all we can do. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 3, he says, uh, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We do not give God the glory before we are in Christ. We cannot. It's impossible. We live for ourselves. 
but Christ conquered the power of death. He conquered the power of sin, and therefore we are freed in him. That's how he's overcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's talking about the end time, the rapture of the church, when we will go to be with the Lord and we will receive a glorified body that is free from the curse of sin. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who could and who has overcome all the power of Satan and all the power of sin to free us. And so the elder has experienced that. That's what has gotten him to heaven, is the overpowering love of God who conquered sin and death for him and for all who are in heaven at this point. And he's saying he has overcome, he has prevailed, and so he's the only one worthy to be able to open this book to reclaim the title deed to the world from Satan, who has usurped it from God and from mankind. And so John hears the elder. Here's the lion, the root of David, the one come to execute judgment, to reclaim the earth, to reclaim righteousness. And in verse 6, John looks. And in verse 6, here's what John sees. And beheld, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts, in the midst of the elders... Does it say it stood a lion? It says he saw a lamb. John looks expecting to see a lion, the lion of Judah, the judge coming to execute judgment upon the earth. And when he looks up and sees Jesus Christ, he sees the lamb. Now the word for lamb that John uses here is actually a term for a small lamb, a diminutive little lamb. When we sing, you know, Mary had a little lamb, that's exactly what John was saying. I saw a little lamb. He's talking about, in essence, almost a pet lamb. But it was this lamb who became the sacrifice. And the picture here is the picture that we get all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 when Israel is about to go out of Egypt. The last night... And God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to tell all the Israelites that on this night I'm going to send my death angel. And in order to be safe, you have to take a lamb, a little lamb. That's the same word. And I want you to sacrifice it, kill it, take the blood, put it on the door, the lintel over the door and on the doorposts. And you're to eat that lamb with your shoes on, with your coats on and ready to go. And God told them, and the Passover to celebrate after that, he said, when you celebrate Passover, you're going to take this lamb on the 10th day of the month, and you're going to keep it in your house for four days until the 14th day of the month. And you're going to treat it like a pet. You're going to separate it from all the other sheep and all the other lambs. This is going to be a special lamb. I want you to take care of it to make sure there's nothing wrong with it, to treat it with care. And then on the fourth day, you're going to kill it. Again, a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The people welcomed him, accepted him as the lamb, the Messiah, And he stayed in Jerusalem for four days before he was crucified. 
Christ is that little, sacrificial, perfect lamb. That's what John saw. In fact, in the Old Testament, we only have two references to Jesus Christ as the lamb. One is in Jeremiah 11, the other is in Isaiah 53. We read Isaiah 53 this morning. In the New Testament, outside of Revelation, there's only four references to Jesus as the Lamb. Twice in John chapter 1, that's John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Once in Acts chapter 8, and once in 1 Peter 1.19, talking about the Lamb without blemish. But that's it. Six references in all the Bible outside of Revelation to Jesus as the Lamb. And in Revelation... 31 times Jesus is the lamb. And here's the first. Because God wants us to see that he was that sacrifice. Now, I don't believe it's coincidence that we celebrated the Lord's Supper on the day that God gave us this message. I didn't plan this out. It's just the next message in the series. We were going through Revelation. We got to Revelation 5. We're at this passage talking about Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and today we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. To help us remember the Lamb that was sacrificed for us. Now look at the description that John gives of the Lamb. Okay, The elder described him as the Lion of Judah, the Root of Jesse, who has overcome, okay? Look at John's description of the lamb. He says, first of all, I see the lamb standing. I'm sorry, I see the lamb as it had been slain. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. So first he's standing, not lying down, not sitting at the right hand of God, as we see other places in Scripture. The lamb is standing. That means he is ready for action. He has a purpose. He's ready to start to do something. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been at the throne of the right hand, uh, the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for his church. But where's the church now? In heaven, with him. And so now Jesus is standing. This is his next assignment. And his next assignment is to execute judgment upon all those who have rejected him. And so he's standing, ready for action, ready to take on his role as the judge. He is the lion at this point, but he's still the lamb. He says he's standing as if he was slain. Now the word slain means slaughtered or sacrificed. And actually in the Greek, it it reads as if now, I'm sorry, as if now in the act of being offered. It means he's being sacrificed. That's the marks that are in his body. That's what John sees, a lamb as if he is being sacrificed. Now, why does John present that in the present tense? It doesn't read that way necessarily in the English, but in the Greek, it's in the present. It's as if he was being slain right now. Because Christ's sacrifice is a continual atonement for all sin. It never ends. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed for the sins of those who were alive in his time. It wasn't just to cover the sins of those who had lived before him up to that point. Jesus' sacrifice is good for all time, for all people. 
And so when John looks at the lamb, it says as if he was in the act of being offered, he's saying that sacrifice that Jesus offered is still valid. The blood is still there and available to pour on the sins of all who will come to him in faith. Even now, when the church is in heaven. Now, as we read through Revelation, you'll see there are people in the tribulation that come to Christ and are forgiven. His blood is still available. But he has the marks of being slaughtered. Remember, the lamb had to be slaughtered, had to be, had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus is standing, not dead, but alive, with the marks of being sacrificed. Now remember, after his resurrection, the disciples were gathered. First time, Jesus came to them, and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas didn't believe him. And the second time, Thomas was there, and Jesus came in the room, and he went right to Thomas, and he says, Okay, Thomas, I'm here. Go ahead and put your fingers in the holes of my hands. Thrust your fist into, the, into my side. He still had the marks of his crucifixion. Now, I don't know if we're going to get to heaven and see Jesus with holes in his hands and his feet and a hole in his side. Okay? But we will recognize the marks of his crucifixion. Because it was those marks, it was his blood that got us there in the first place. He's not just going to set that aside. And I think for us as believers, a continual reminder, we're not going to be celebrating a Lord's Supper like this. We're going to be celebrating with the Lord at his table, but always remembering what he gave up to get us there. So he says, here's the lamb standing as if he was slain. Then he says he has seven horns. Horns in the Bible are always a symbol of power and authority. Seven is a number of completion, perfection. Christ's authority His power is perfect and complete. He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. He is all-sovereign. And these seven horns represent that. And then he says he has seven eyes. Now, we've seen a lot of sevens in these first couple chapters of Revelation. Okay? Again, Seven being the number of perfection and completion. And most all of them are referencing some characteristic of God or the nature of God in some way. The seven eyes means God's observation, his ability to understand, to see us, is perfect. Nothing escapes his gaze. We saw that in chapter 1. The fire comes out of Christ's eyes, the lightning. It's just a, a symbol of his all seeing this. Now, for people who are against him, for rebels, that's scary. Okay? Because nothing escapes his gaze. For people who are his children, that's comforting. Because we can never be outside of Christ's sight. He always sees us. He always knows what's going on in our lives. So he says, seven eyes, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, this is the the next reference. Again, we've seen this reference twice already. This is the third reference in Revelation this early in the book to the seven spirits of God. And again, we read the passage this morning in, in Isaiah chapter 11. I read it to you earlier when we were talking about the Lamb of God 
and it talked about having the Spirit of God on him, and then it talked about the seven ministries of the Spirit. And so here, the seven spirits of God just shows the completion, the perfection of God's Spirit. Before, when we read this, it was on the throne. The seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God, before the throne of God the Father. Here, we're talking about the Son. So is it the Spirit of God the Father, or is it the Spirit of God the Son? And the answer is yes. Because it's, again, another representation of a triune God here. The Spirit is not just the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit is not just the Spirit of the Son. They all three are one. And so where the Spirit is, it represents both the Father and the Son. Where Jesus is, he represents both the Spirit and the Father. Where the Father is, he represents both the Son and the Spirit. You can't separate them. And so you have Jesus Christ here, the Lamb, with the seven spirits of God, the completion, the perfection of the Holy Spirit in him. Now, there's one more thing I want you to notice about this Lamb. At the very beginning of that verse, it says, And I, lo, I beheld in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders. Remember, John is standing in the throne room of God. He sees the throne here. And he's just described for us the elders around the throne, the 24 elders that represent the church. He's just described for us the four living creatures, which are cherubim, with the four faces and their wings, and how they all worship God, and all this is happening. And then he sees the scroll. And as his attention is drawn to the scroll, then the angel comes and says, okay, who's worthy to open this scroll? And where does he see Christ? In the middle of it all. Because that's where Christ belongs, in the middle of it all. He is the center of everything. In the Expositor's Bible, it gives this explanation. To him, talking about Christ, all the, are, to him all the works of God, both in creation and redemption, turn. To him, the old covenant led, the prophets who were raised up under it, searched what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point to, when testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. From him the new covenant flowed, and those who are under it are called to the knowledge of the truth to recognize him, and they are all in all. The lamb slaughtered, raised from the grave, ascended, being the impersonation of that divine love, which is the essence of the divine nature, is the visible center of the universe. Jesus Christ is at the center of everything. Paul writes in his epistles that to, to him should go all the preeminence. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's right in the middle, and that's exactly where he should be. Not just here in this vision of heaven, but in everything. As, our, as, as believers, our lives should center around Jesus Christ. And if we displace him and put ourselves there where we become the center and the focus we've looked at that before that's called idolatry and we are to flee idolatry how do we flee idolatry keep jesus in the center that's where he belongs colossians chapter one says he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation. In him all things are created. In the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him 
and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things upon earth or things in heaven. Jesus is the center of everything. He's the lamb. He's the judge. He's the king. He's everything. And so here John sees Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, that little lamb, that sacrificial lamb, standing with power and glory and authority in the midst of the throne of God at the very center of heaven and the universe. That's the Jesus Christ we need to see. Verse 7, he says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Because he was worthy. The only one who was worthy. Jesus Christ, the slaughtered and risen lamb, is the only one in all the universe who is worthy to reclaim the title deed to the world. He is the only one worthy and has the authority to overthrow Satan's power and hold on us in sin. He paid the price to redeem mankind and creation. He's conquered sin and death and its curse on mankind and creation. And he has the power over Satan and over all his demons and over death and hell. And he's the one who will overthrow and has overthrown their authority. And eventually, one day, he's going to cast all of them into the lake of fire forever. That's the Jesus Christ we're talking about. And God has given him that authority. Why? Philippians 2. Because he humbled himself. He became a servant. He became obedient even unto death. Because that was God's purpose for him. And because he has overcome, he now has the authority as God and as a risen man and as our Savior and as the center of all the universe to reclaim what is rightfully his in the first place. Daniel describes this. We studied this when we were going through Daniel chapter 7. The only thing that's missing is the scroll, but this is what Daniel says in Daniel seven thirteen and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw the same thing. The scroll wasn't there, or at least he didn't describe it. But to Jesus Christ is given all power, authority, dominion. It's the same Jesus Christ today, yesterday, forever. So in this passage, we see Jesus Christ. The elder presents him as the Lion of Judah. John sees him as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. In your bulletin, I put this thought. Have you ever been 
in a situation where somebody was trying to describe to you another person, and they tell you all these details about the person, and then when you finally meet that person, they're totally different than what you expected? That's what John's experiencing here. He looks to find the judge of the universe, and instead he finds the sacrificial lamb. Why? What, what caused that? One of my teachers and professors in college, he's in heaven now, but Dr. Stuart Custer, he was a longtime pastor and Bible teacher. He explained it this way. It's all about your perspective. If you are a sinner rebelling against God and you hear about the humble lamb of, script, of, of, lamb of God in Scripture, when you go to look for that humble lamb in your sin, what you will find is a lion, the judge, and he will be your eternal judge. But if you are a believer who submitted to Christ, you go to Christ expecting to find the lion, and instead you find the humble and gentle Lamb of God who paid the price for your sin. It's all about your position and your perspective. If you realize that you deserve a judge, you will see the Lamb. If you think you are okay and you'd rather have just the Lamb, then you will experience the Lion. And we all will face either the lion or the lamb. But you can only find him as the lamb if you have forsaken sin and submitted to him in faith for salvation. Then he becomes the lamb to us. For all others, Christ is that fierce lion of Judah that will come to judge sin. Now we are going to see Christ soon. I'm convinced of it. I hope in our lifetime. I hope today. But the question is this, when you stand before Christ, are you going to see the lion or will you see the lamb? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us this picture of our Savior, of the exalted Jesus Christ, who for us will be that eternal lamb who sacrificed everything so that we could gain everything. Lord, there's no way we could thank you enough. There's no way we could ever pay you back. And so we just glorify and praise you for your goodness to us, your grace that's overflowing each day. Lord, we pray for those who will see him as the lion, the judge, that before they get to that point in their lives and in their death, that they would experience the love of Christ, that they would see his sacrifice as the payment for their sin, that they would submit before his authority as their judge so that he can be their lamb as well. Thank you for this beautiful picture that we have in your word. Lord, help us not to forget it as we go forward. We've celebrated together his death his resurrection. We're looking forward to the great resurrection when we will be with you. But help us to keep our eyes on Christ 
both now and for eternity. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.